Today is April 8th, 2014, and this is episode 99. This program is intended for information and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we've got a long one. Back in December, Andreas sat down with Dr. Adam Back, creator of the Hashcash concept that Satoshi built Bitcoin on top of. One of the things that struck me about that interview was the concerns held by Dr. Back over digital scarcity. The idea that other cryptocurrencies dilute the value of Bitcoin by offering the same services, but expanding the supply of tokens able to perform that service. In other sectors, altcoins have been described as the experimental laboratory of the cryptocurrency world. But what if you could have an altcoin ecosystem that offered all the innovation, but was still at its core Bitcoin? I ran into Adam again at the Coin Summit event, along with longtime entrepreneur Austin Hill. Over our long conversation, they share their breakthrough, its implications, and what comes next. Enjoy the show. So uh, I'm Austin Hill. I've worn a bunch of hats. But first and foremost, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I did a lot of work in the area of cryptography, privacy, anonymity, and electronic cash with a company called Zero Knowledge Systems that uh, was started in 1997. Uh, still exists, but we moved away from a lot of the crypto in the dot-com crash. But there was a period of time where I employed pretty much a huge amount of the core cypherpunks, many of whom had done a lot of the early work on electronic cash systems, including Adam, who worked with me for four years. And uh, Adam recently came to me and uh, started talking to me about a new project. And uh, he and a few of the Bitcoin core developers had invented some new extensions to the blockchain. And uh, he wanted my help to uh, build a company around it and to really focus on the idea of a blockchain 2.0 that was forward and backward compatible with the existing blockchain, but could address a lot of the issues of scalability, pace of invention, uh, transaction throughput, uh, multi-asset issuance, uh, and extensions to the smart contract scripting language. So uh, he and I are doing this now, and uh, we're working with a number of the core developers to uh, kind of make a new platform available that uh, we feel will be exciting to the community. So when you say to make a new platform available, now, uh, I remember the interview that uh, Adam Back did with uh, Andreas Antonopoulos back in December, and there was talk about like a a test blockchain that could have uh, features incorporated back into the primary one. Is this the idea that you're talking about? Uh, yes, that's that's the basis of it. Um, at the time, I was talking about a concept I came up with uh, early last year called a one-way peg. And since then, Greg Maxwell uh, proposed a two-way peg um, between Bitcoin and a sidechain, which is uh, even more interesting because um, with a one-way peg, you're slightly subject to market conditions, and you can only really do it in the context of a, a planned upgrade as a kind of, um, you know, Bitcoin current versus Bitcoin beta and then a switch over date, let's say 18 months in the future and being able to move coins forwards into the new network and backwards either at market rate or via swapping with other people who want to get in. 
Now, two-way peg allows you, with a small change to Bitcoin main, to mathematically peg between the main Bitcoin network and a sidechain network. So then that can be used in, 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 in a wider set of contexts, including sort of an ongoing alternative sidechains optimized for different purposes. And there can actually be multiple sidechains which are competing on features. So, for example, one could have a higher, a larger block size, which may incur some centralization risk potentially, but get uh, higher transactions per second, and the users would be able to unilaterally remove their coins from it and put them back into the main Bitcoin chain. So that, that would kind of act as a backstop against centralization risk. If you ran into the side effects of centralization risk, you would have the last resort of removing your coins. So that kind of insulates you from that risk. So my mind is expanding a little bit here, and I'm going to try and understand what you're telling me. So what you're saying is that we can essentially have multiple chains that are all Bitcoin, but they don't all have their own type of Bitcoin. Basically, or rather, they don't all each have their own money supply. The money supply can move from one chain to another wherever it has the most advantage for the person who's using it at that point, and then it can move back again if it's better used in another chain. Is that right? The key idea here is to protect the concept of digital scarcity and the 21 million Bitcoin limit. And so by linking chains, what we do is we essentially set Bitcoin up as a a transactional currency for all the innovation and for all new assets. So you can uh, potentially issue shares in a side chain and have a side chain that's specifically designed around smart contracts for shares, derivatives, uh, you know, other types of issued assets, and they're ultimately backed by Bitcoin. And so you can peg them to Bitcoin. Right. So, so um, Bitcoin becomes, I mean, so, so typically various share-related uh, cryptocurrency ideas or math-based currencies. So for example, Ripple has XRPs, Mastercoin has Mastercoins, Ethereum has Ethers, Colorcoin has nothing, right? Because ColorCoin is just watermarking on top of Bitcoin. So that's artificial scarcity race. And I think it's um, fairer at this point. I think we talked, I talked about this with Andreas a lot on my last interview is it's fairer if we just use the existing scarcity race because it, it was a surprise. People for the first couple of years didn't have a strong reason to suppose that Bitcoin would succeed and it would bootstrap to a stable value, you know, some volatility, but still a stable, persistent value. Now, if you start a new scarcity race, it's, it's a kind of known quantity, right, that you're hoping strongly that's, that that process is going to get repeated. So, and each time you have a, a new scarcity race, it creates an interoperability silo. Your only way to get into there or to write contracts against it is at market, swapping coins between different networks. So... By pegging to Bitcoin, it's, it turns out that it's possible to have uh, sidechains with additional features or you know, faster transactions, more transactions per second, direct support for issued assets, smart contracts, extended smart contracts, um, all while using Bitcoin itself as the transactional currency. So we feel that's a neutral choice. I mean, it's the main choice right now, and it's a neutral choice. It's not, it's not starting you know, a cryptocurrency that's owned by one company, one project, a small group of developers, or early speculators who, um, you know, if the project succeeds wildly, will become exceedingly rich. This is a, a kind of a, more of a neutral 
stance. So when people talk about building on top of TCP, I think this is this is actually the way to do it, which is the the interoperability using bitcoins themselves, existing bitcoins from the Bitcoin network, and being able to move them. You know, so the example would be: I have I have a bitcoin I bought on the Bitcoin network. I want to use it for small payments to buy a cup of coffee, that kind of thing, from my smartphone. I move it into a sidechain, which has a larger block and so more transactions per second. Uh, when I finish with that, I move the change back into the main Bitcoin network, and then I move it into a different sidechain because I want to make some investments and buy some, you know, a Bitcoin-denominated derivative against U.S. dollars or buy some electronic shares or something like that. So you can use Bitcoin as an interoperability level, moving moving them across the pegs, basically, and it allows open innovation in a in a neutral sense. You know, without attaching to new scarcity races. So we've recently seen a fairly popular altcoin, Aurora coin, come under a 51% time warp attack. And this is because the amount of hashing power in the network dropped off. And it was relatively easy for, you know, a malicious mining group to go in there and kind of mess up their day. So when you're talking about adding additional side chains, do these side chains get all the security of the main Bitcoin of the main Bitcoin chain, or do they each need to be mined, whether through a merged mining process or through something something separate? Are there security implications? Here is the question. A large part of what we're doing is uh, building the infrastructure so that these side chains can come online and take full advantage of the global hash rate through things like merged mining, but with some additional extensions because there's some core services that you want. For instance, uh, good PKI for the registry, digitally signing for new asset issuers and sidechains, clear disclosure. If people are able to move Bitcoins in and out of these networks, it should be obvious to a number of the wallets out there what these sidechains are, what are the properties of the sidechain. So when you get an asset from that sidechain, you actually are the wallets are aware. So there's a lot of really important infrastructure that needs to be done. But a key part of that is making sure that we're we don't see a justification for a lot of these altcoins switching out the proof of work. Aside from Adam's contribution in inventing Hashcash, it ignores close to $200, $250 million worth of ASICs and hardware and data centers that Bitcoin is self-funded as a platform for verification. And so uh, the idea of trying something new and trying to bootstrap a new global hash rate infrastructure, we think is kind of pointless. It makes a lot more sense to use what's out there, very similar to how Nancoin has achieved you know, 85 or 90% of the Bitcoin hash rate through merge mining. You can do the same thing, but there are supporting services that need to be built for the ecosystem to be trusted. You know, if this had happened nine months ago, it would have been a whole new slew of innovative features that I've just heard you list. But now it kind of comes against a backdrop of some competition moving into the space. I wonder, what does this do to protocols that have been building on top of Bitcoin? Does this obsolete their approach? Is this just the way that everybody should be doing everything when it comes to these things? I think it's a preferable approach because it's an interoperable approach. You can move money around and interoperate between different and uh, different networks, different sidechains. People like to talk about this TCP analogy, usually quite inaccurately. You know, for example, that they're going to build on top of Bitcoin by sending messages that are actually watermarked Bitcoin transactions. And I mean, that doesn't really make sense because you know, with TCP, you are sending like user messages on top of TCP/IP, but that's a point-to-point communication link. If you send them over the Bitcoin network, it's an n-squared 
broadcast and the things that go on the Bitcoin network should be strictly about the minimum amount of data necessary <clears throat> to ensure the Bitcoin properties, you know, so um, that the value transfer can be tracked, the smart contracts can be evaluated. I mean, the small smart contracts like, you know, multi-sig and so on. And so it should, it should be minimal data, like any data about, you know, oh, this is my email address or this is a receipt or a description of the product, all, all that kind of thing doesn't belong on the Bitcoin network. And that's what the payment protocol is for. So the payment protocol is point-to-point between people. And when, when the payment protocol is done, a transaction-focused message gets broadcast onto the Bitcoin network. So I think some of the people who are talking about building on top of Bitcoin are, are doing it in a naive way, which is likely to cause disruption for Bitcoin. So, for example, even ColorCoin, which is, which is quite neutral and clean, I mean, it's, it's, there's no digital scarcity race attached to it, to scalability issues because if the share trading involving ColorCoin reached a significant level, it could saturate the Bitcoin network. I mean, right now, Bitcoin is transaction limited around seven transactions per second. And while the block size could be increased, increasing the block size tends to incur centralization risk because you need high-speed links, you know, data center-grade bandwidth to keep up if that gets too large. When Adam worked with me in the 90s, he had shown me uh, some work he did, which was essentially colored coins with uh, David Sholm's eCash server. He had come up with the idea of coloring DigiCash coins and watermarking them. And even last year, he still thought it was the best approach to add extensions. But then we started to look at the ecosystem and saw, you know, with SPV wallets, uh, it, color coins don't work with SPV wallets, and we do live in a world where mobile phones are uh, a predominant device. So if Bitcoin's going to reach its full potential of reaching uh, or interacting with billions of people, color coins just doesn't work in that scenario because you can't have a full node on a, a smartphone. On top of which, no one had really contemplated how will this capability of watermarking work? If two different people want to register that a coin is blue and one person thinks that means it's a share and another person means it's a copyright registration and they both encode it blue, who's the ultimate arbiter? So there were, there were ideas, but no one had really thought out how do color coins work in the Bitcoin ecosystem with SPV aware clients, with some sort of asset registry, whether you do that on a distributed basis like Namecoin does or you do it uh, in a centralized PKI uh, digitally signed registry service, there needs to be supporting infrastructure to make something like that work. And no one had really thought about that. I think everyone got enamored with the idea of colored coins and kind of ran off and said, let's just watermark a bunch of things. So, you know, Adam, after looking at it, really abandoned that idea and focused on how can we allow for Uh, Some of the properties of native marketing of new asset issuance, uh, extensions to the scripting, uh, build on a neutral uh, platform. I mean, the principles for our new project are principles derived right from Bitcoin. Permissionless innovation, decentralized wherever possible, decentralized and distributed. And, you know, one of the core principles, and we'll be releasing this uh, in more detail once we announce the name of the project and some of the people involved. But the founding principle, when I flew out to work with Adam after he came to recruit me out of retirement, uh, he literally came and knocked me on the head and said, 
pay attention to Bitcoin and I had played with it, but you know, I had spent almost $4 million trying to develop electronic cash. So I still had some battle scars and it was kind of like, I'm glad someone did it, but I'm not sure if I really want to get back in that game. And Adam came and knocked me on the head uh, and said, Austin, you need to pay attention to Bitcoin. And once I did and saw what he saw, I flew out and we spent a week in a boardroom together, just mapping out uh, an ecosystem that I really wanted to get involved and help build. And the number one principle we wrote down on the board was can't be evil. And that's an important distinction from the, the some of the other people who have tried to adhere to principles. And it's very inspired by what we did at Zero Knowledge. We built, we believed in cryptographic systems whereby trust wasn't earned because we were good guys but trust was based off the protocols, the white paper and the cryptography where we were not asking for trust. This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next for April 8th, 2014. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. The opening sentence of George Orwell's 1984 holds as much significance for Next's creator as the number 21 does, and on April 4th, the third and final part of BC Next's essay on Next was released. BC Next has left the Next community and is no longer responsible for its future direction. In his message, BC Next says that Next will fail unless the community rallies behind it and keeps it running. He argues that mathematical algorithms are not sufficient to immortalize Bitcoin or Next because math cannot account for the imperfection of humanity. BC Next says that Bitcoin and Next are stepping stones and that his main project will be released in the future under his own name. You can read BC Next's full message, all three parts, on the Next Wiki at wiki.nextcrypto.org. For more general information on Next, head to nextcrypto.org or mynext.org. And stay tuned for more news on Next in the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that is that the, the protocols and the projects that we've kind of seen to this point are one of two categories. You can think of them either like uh, new species derivative spin-off sort of things that, that are derived from Bitcoin, but that don't really add much to it. And then on the other side, you've got uh, structures that build on top of Bitcoin and try to add more to it. Just sounds to me like you're saying that blockchain technology, at least in its current incarnation, doesn't really scale that well vertically and so we need to be very concerned for efficiency reasons and therefore it makes sense rather than building everything into one bitcoin instead we make you know a hundred bitcoins or a thousand bitcoins that all are able to interoperate with each other and so therefore we have a lot of redundancy in the system if one or multiples of them fail right mainly the idea is that i mean at, at the moment i mean it's it's partly a technological innovation and the progress of it so Lots of people seem to be interested in the potential for issued assets and smart contracts. They can see that that could be a very interesting thing for the future and that you can do sort of programmable trust, you know, trustless escrow and other kinds of innovations built on top of it. But the question is, okay, how do you do that? Like if, you, if you'd ask most people early last year how you do that, ColorCoin was the answer. Then we had the ultimate shares, you know, like BitShares, Ethereum, MasterCoin, coming in and uh, adding other stories between ColorCoin. So they, they were like separate networks or networks based on watermarking on top of the Bitcoin network. And I think the pegging technology is, is the next step of uh, technological improvement, which allows you to get the effects they were after and, and reach the objectives that people are interested in, but in an interoperable way. So I think it is building on top of Bitcoin 
And it's, it's not starting a new thing. It's like directly interoperable with Bitcoin, but in a way which doesn't result in basically spamming or, you know, like watermarking Bitcoin transactions so that every single share transaction or bid or ask ends up being a message on top of Bitcoin and saturating Bitcoin. So it turns out you don't need to do that, basically. You can make a sidechain, which is pegged to Bitcoin, so you're still dealing with real Bitcoins with no counterparty risk. You know, there's no escrow agent holding your Bitcoin. Your Bitcoin is just able to move between uh, networks which are tied at, in the sense of being merge mined. And uh, then people can do their innovation in an interoperable way. So I, mean, I think the loose analogy would be like in the early days of TCPIP, if every time somebody wanted to make you know, uh, media streaming, uh, web pages, online shopping, each time they'd, they'd made a fork of the TCP protocol, changed a few parameters so that it was an incompatible network, and said, you know, great, we've done online shopping. And then you'd find out that none of these things talk to each other, and you'd have to like pull them out and put them back in again to even achieve anything. So you get network effect by having interoperable systems. So if we can have different people innovating on different aspects, you know, micropayments, online shares, high-frequency trading, to do all these things in different networks, but that are open networks, you know, preserve the uh, freedom, freedom to innovate and fully interoperable at the Bitcoin level across two-way pegs. I think we kind of get the best of both worlds. We get we get the open freedom to innovate, and we avoid the silo effect where each each network is separate, and we avoid these kinds of possibly self-defeating sort of um, selfish new share issuance situations that some things end up being built on. Part of what's critical about this is for uh, the community as a whole. We don't want to see another Mt. Gox happen. And it wasn't only Mt. Gox. Exchanges have had an incredibly high failure rate, either through theft, incompetence, or internal uh, malfeasance. And we need to see the entire infrastructure. Although there are new players in the industry who are standing up and saying, we're doing security audits, or we're investing more in security, and we're doing things different, they're still operating off-blockchain, on a trust me model, usually holding private keys or security in a trusted entity. And we need to extend the trustless infrastructure of the blockchain to more parts of the ecosystem. But you can only do that if the blockchain can actually scale to have more of every interaction dependent on the blockchain. Because some of the exchanges, for instance, internally were doing more than seven transactions per second. And so there was Aside from how they designed themselves, there was a very practical limit to what they could do on the blockchain. And so it became just easier for everyone to do things off blockchain. And that leads to a, you know, an IOU situation where you don't own your bitcoins. You just agreed that someone promises not to run away with them. And that's not good for this ecosystem. I mean, it's, it's actually not really using the features of Bitcoin. I mean, what Bitcoin and smart contracts offer is the ability to build, you know, infrastructure, services, exchanges, payment processes, to build all these ecosystem components in a decentralized way, in such a way that you can get service without having to trust the service operator. That's, as I see it, that is the interesting new property of smart contracts and the, and the Bitcoin model. And almost all of the system players are not using it. So partly that's because it's, it's more complicated and they were just trying to do, you know, some simple Web 2.0 stuff. 
but it's also, as Austin said, um, somewhat an artifact of the transaction rate limit. So if we can get sidechains running that can support higher transaction rates and avoid the centralization risk by uh, the ability to remove coins back to the other network, you, you should be able to build, for example, a Bitcoin exchange which doesn't hold your coins. So it's possible for the users to atomically swap coins using an atomic swap property, which is a known property but not very widely used. And then the exchange can just be matching orders. And so that, that, that can basically remove the need for audit. I mean, audit is after the fact reactive. You know, if we'd had audits every six months on Mt. Gox, that doesn't necessarily mean that the situation would have been avoided because the situation probably arose within a period of, within a six-month interval. So the point of Bitcoin is with, with is that you have real-time audit, basically, that if somebody tries to do something outside of the smart contract, you know, like to have an exchange that tries to take the money or you're, you agree to an order for somebody to try and not fulfill their part of it, it's a priori prevented and real-time audited so that at the end of the transaction, you know, you know what's happened rather than finding out six months later that, you know, an exchange lost all its money. So by having... Um, by architecting these things in, a, in a, a way where you don't have to trust them, you can basically trade with air gaps, so like offline wallets, like hardware wallets, armory wallets, the armory offline wallet on the, on the user side. And also the server, if it's hacked, it doesn't really have any assets at play. So as long as you spot check the prices that you're agreeing to, there's not really that much bad that will happen in this model if an exchange is compromised. So the, the exchange never has your keys. They just handle the order matching now in this paradigm. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So they can compete on marketing, on uh, building liquidity and volume. They can compete on customer service, regulatory compliance, based off the new IRS ruling, making it easier for you to file your taxes. <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of things they can innovate on. But the basic security model isn't trust us, trust us with your uh, assets. It's trust us to deliver a great marketplace where you can find the best liquidity and the fastest and best customer service, but you never need trust us with your assets. So I think I mentioned this to you. I have like uh, 10 projects that I'm consulting on that are all in the user-created asset space, and they're on a variety of the projects that were out there. I don't pick favorites. I don't pick teams on this stuff. I'm looking for the best solutions. So, you know, is this a solution that is available or will be available in the near future? And if I have, you know, these 10 projects, some of which are like Kickstarter um, type uh, tokens and others are, are more like uh, IPOs or equity sort of things. Um, and some are just kind of like a charity project. So would each one of these get its own chain? Would I launch a chain for all of my projects? Would I use a specific chain that you're thinking is going to be out there? But how would this work? This. We had focused for the last uh, two months on the core science because uh, we gathered a number of the Bitcoin core developers from around the world, many of whom who hadn't even met each other. And we set up a house in California where they all came and collaborated. Some of them lived in the house uh, and a number of them came into the we were kind of calling it the Bitcoin mansion. It wasn't a mansion, but it was a, a big house. Uh, a lot of them came into the Bitcoin uh, mansion and said, this is not possible. We don't believe in this approach. The ability to do a two-way peg and retain all the properties and build a security firewall around Bitcoin is impossible. We've now proven it is. 
We've gotten uh, sign off and support from a lot of the Bitcoin core developers. But even that change is going to require some time uh, because uh, there is a community at large that needs to understand it. There is a proving period that needs to be there. And, you know, these guys are incredibly overlooked, unfortunately, I think, by the ecosystem that depends on them. And they're volunteers, by and large, who are controlling some of the most important code on the planet, I think. Uh, next to like space shuttle, <laughs> you know, if we have a whole bunch of space shuttles and space stations blowing up, it can ruin space exploration. If they mess up, they can ruin math-based currencies or set them back incredibly far. And so they have to be very judicious and patient in adopting changes. Right. Actually, and that, that point is, tends to lead to contention. And I, I saw it myself uh, last year. So when I was talking to Andreas, I explained a whole bunch of ideas that I'd come across and some that I'd invented myself that would make interesting new features for Bitcoin. And once once you get in that mindset of like, okay, this would be cool, it seems to work very Because after a while, they can't really afford to entertain your you know your pet project, even if it's a very cool project, because you know they're protecting ten billion dollars worth of assets, and if they accidentally introduce a bug while adding your cool feature, that everybody will have, you know, a bad five years in the cryptocurrency space. So it means that it's actually, the innovation on the core is actually slow. I mean, literally, the pace of innovation is slow because it's conservative and value-preserving and focused on you know, robustness, fixing minor bugs, that kind, kind of very careful, gradual change. So... The idea with a two-way peg, I mean, so the two-way peg itself requires a moderately high-risk change to Bitcoin itself. So that's that's a, a kind of bootstrap problem that they have to evaluate this change or set of changes and be very sure that it's safe. But once that's done, it allows people to do innovation on side chains. And so they can, you know, different people can do different explore different properties on different sidechains. So if zero cash wants to do something, they could go do it on a sidechain. If somebody gets, you know, in six months starts to have a big argument about having increasing the block size, well they can go do that on a sidechain. And maybe the main Bitcoin network wants to even reduce the block size to increase cent- decentralization. Um, if somebody wants to do something, you know, with changing the contracting language, uh, explicit support for coloring, i.e. tagged issued assets which are SPV compatible, they can do that on another sidechain. And people with different views about what contracting language should be can do it on different sidechains. So it basically frees up the space to allow innovation, open innovation more rapidly without creating risk for Bitcoin main because basically the security firewall guarantees that if you elect to move coins into a sidechain, you are exposed to bugs on that sidechain that affect value. Obviously, people will be very careful on that. But the people with money in the main Bitcoin chain and other competing sidechains are unaffected by that bug. There's an absolute firewall. So you, the, way, the way that works is you can only move coins back that have been moved out. So you know, if, if somebody puts one Bitcoin into an experimental sidechain and something goes wrong and somebody takes it, well, they lost the Bitcoin, but the main Bitcoin network is unaffected and um, can't be affected, basically. The value of a Bitcoin, regardless of what chain it currently resides on, is still one Bitcoin, right? The value does not float against other chains of Bitcoin. Right, right. There's a, there's a mathematical, like there's an actually implemented protocol where you can 
move the Bitcoin. You know, you've got Bitcoin on one chain, you want it onto another chain. Now, for efficiency, when there's sufficient market demand get floating around, you might swap with somebody who wants to move in the other direction. But you have the ability to actually move the Bitcoin you possess directly onto the other chain. So, so this and is a flexible money supply implementation then, yes? It's still fully preserving the 21 million cap and the, you know, the supply function. So actually, it's only the main Bitcoin network that is mining and creating new coins. The other side chains are just repositories for coins. So you can move Bitcoins out of the main network into them and back out. Is there a so financial what, motivation for someone to, uh, to um, merge mine one of these if there's no reward? Good question. And we believe there will be. But some of those details uh, we're not exactly disclosing. Uh, you know, we're in discussion with uh, a lot of the large miners and mining pools on uh, making sure that they have good incentives and good reasons to merge mine this. There will be an economic model that uh, supports uh, participation and follows a lot of the same uh, model of Bitcoin. It just won't be based off mining rewards. So obviously that leaves transaction fees. But uh, there is a transaction model that is flexible, that's market-based, that would allow uh, each of these sidechains to have their own innovations, but collectively, all of them together can increase the transaction fee revenue for people who are mining, merge mining this. I see. And one one of the other key points to remember is what's great about this idea that really I enjoyed looking at it from a large scale uh, complex systems design and uh, merchant property is it will actually drive demand for Bitcoin and increase the utilization of Bitcoin because now you have a whole bunch of other interesting assets that can be uh, or contracts that can be written against Bitcoin. And so you can imagine once, you know, We've had some discussions with some very, very large financial uh, institutions who are looking at uh, volumes of transactions and contracts and derivatives and future options uh, contracts that are like orders of magnitude larger than the entire Bitcoin asset base. Huge. And so when you start to be able to embrace or extend the, the functionality to include part of their asset base in, encoded in, a, in blockchain technology, you can start to see where the demand for Bitcoin will far outpace the availability and will ultimately drive up the price of Bitcoin, I believe. Right. So, I mean, remembering that the Bitcoin's price is a, um, there's, a, there's a speculative part, which is looking at the future potential utilization, but largely... Bitcoin's value is its utility value. So the fact that you can make transactions for flat fees and so on. So once somebody is able to bring to the market an open network for uh, supporting smart contracts against other assets, that opens up a wider set of transaction types. So you would expect the transaction throughput to go up, the dollar value being transacted to go up. And as Bitcoin is the kind of neutral transactional currency, of all of these sidechains. Therefore, the amount of Bitcoin-denominated transactions goes up, um, which, which puts up the utility value of Bitcoin.
Bitcoin Expo 2014, presented by the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada, is just a week away. The conference will feature the key players behind Ethereum, CA Vertex, Litecoin, Open Transactions, Sean's Outpost, Cointalk, Mastercoin, Dark Wallet, CryptoKit, Blockchain.info, QuickBT, Bitcoin Magazine, and many others, with special guest Andreas Antonopoulos as the Master of Ceremonies. Bitcoin Expo 2014, Toronto, Canada, April 11th to 13th. For tickets, visit BitcoinExpo.ca. The BitGive Foundation is a nonprofit charitable giving organization leveraging the power of the Bitcoin community to improve public health and the environment worldwide. Help us demonstrate the significant impact of Bitcoin in addressing these critical issues on a global scale. Support international giving in Bitcoin. Please visit our website at www.bitgivefoundation.org. That's www.bitgivefoundation.org. Right. I, I definitely see the argument for value here. Um, one question I have about potential limits to innovation in a system like this, um, since you're still utilizing Bitcoin's mining, that means that the block time should still remain at about 10 minutes. And for some of these um, like decentralized trading applications like we've uh, talked about in the past, that actually winds up being kind of a long time because it's the amount of time it takes between the you know, time that you say, I'd like to do this action and the time that the blockchain actually has included it and it actually has happened. So is there uh, the ability to try uh, faster block times or is 10 minutes the low bound limitation? You can uh, potentially do different block intervals on a sidechain counterintuitively because when you're merge mining with, let's say, Namecoin as an example, because Namecoin has a of the hash rate, that means that some Namecoin winning blocks are not Bitcoin blocks and vice versa. So you can have a different target. Uh, you, you can have smaller, faster blocks if, if you want. So it is, it is possible within the framework to support that. In addition to that, two of the members of our, uh, uh, who are working on some of these ideas with us have had some really great innovations around how to scale to uh, hundreds of thousands of transactions per second while retaining all of the properties of a blockchain uh, security model. And those innovations will allow for high-frequency trading, uh, you know, very, very high-speed liquid markets and exchanges that are using blockchain security model and blockchain trustless infrastructures, uh, but are, meet the business requirements that are necessary to be able to do high-volume. And that is definitely part of our project scope is to make those platforms available for people who do have, you know, uh, you know, someone who may come in and say, hey, I, I want to, you know, I want to compete with Visa, but I can see myself hitting 20, 20 30, 40, 50,000 transactions per second. Where am I going to process those and be able to get instantaneous transaction verification uh, without having to wait for the limits that are in the blockchain? So we believe that that's very possible while retaining the trustless security model of the blockchain. Two questions left, basically, from my end. Uh, so is this a project that's gonna, that we're going to see results from in 2014, 2015, 2016? I know that the Bitcoin you know, development team is rightly conservative, and so you know, it seems like it might take a while to, 
to see this. And then the other thing is, you know, this is this sounds really exciting and this sounds great. What else should I be asking about that I haven't known to ask? Um, well, I'll tackle the first one. So uh, we're right now combing our hair and putting on our hats and our fancy uh, ties, although we don't wear ties. But we're getting ready to announce and kind of give some details to the project so that people who are interested uh, can uh, track the project and reveal it, including announcing the name and uh, who's on the team. So that will be happening in the next 60 to 90 days. Uh, so a very short term. And we are going to be releasing, you know, one of the principles that we adopted from kind of the cypherpunk principles is, uh, and it's one of the founding principles of the project, is something called We Speak in Code. So we really want our products and our uh, software releases to speak. Um, and so we'll be releasing software very quickly that will help, uh, that is necessary software for bootstrapping this type of ecosystem. And so there's a couple different parts of the existing blockchain and Bitcoin ecosystem that have huge gaping problems that we can deliver immediate value without needing to wait you know, the 12, 18 or 24 months that it might take to get some of these changes ad adopted in Bitcoin core. And, you know, some people are aware of these problems, but uh, we feel that we can deliver immediate value based off that. Uh, get out there, start releasing very useful open source, free software, uh, some uh, software stacks that other people can adopt in the ecosystem to secure their users uh, accounts and uh, uh, secure parts of the Bitcoin ecosystem that are operating on a trust me model, we think we can deliver a lot of value by helping them move to more of a trustless infrastructure. So we're going to focus on doing that. At the same time, we're going to be investing very heavily. Um, we're putting together a really good team of uh, cryptographers, programmers, working to support some of the volunteers in the Bitcoin core community to provide them resources and uh, allow them to uh, really, you know, accelerate some of the things that they know they need to be done. But call it a criticism, call it, uh, you know, a comment for the community. You need to remember that most of these guys are volunteers. They have day jobs. They carry a huge amount of weight on their shoulders. And they do it because they love the community and they love the technology. They have not... I think in many parts received a lot of support. I mean, the community has come together and it pays Gavin's salary and others, but a lot of these guys are still volunteers. I think, you know, supporting them and providing them with more tools, more infrastructure, more testers, more documentation resources, uh, travel vouchers so that they can actually get together and meet face to face once in a while. These are all things that we're going to be doing. And we hope the community will participate in that uh, as we announce details of that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I noticed at the Coin Summit conference that uh, some of the ecosystem players on the payment processor side were asked a question from the audience about um, supporting core development. I mean, everybody in the Bitcoin ecosystem is relying on the Bitcoin core. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin D, right? Um, and they were asked, you know, in what in what way they were supporting that, and uh, you know, if if they would be able to, for example, if they have core developer or senior developers on their staff who are very familiar with the Bitcoin protocol, have them contribute time to Bitcoin core testing, maintenance, development. And the, the answers were mostly aspirational. Um, there were some actual comments to suggest that their staff were already working on that. So I think that's good. But I think that really 
the uh, the business community should step up and in the Linux like model have people on staff, you know, as they can afford, who are working on the Bitcoin core because their entire business model depends on the reliability and availability of the Bitcoin network. I'm so, seeing a lot of people these days talking about Bitcoin 2.0, and I'm very curious here, guys. Is what you're working on the real Bitcoin 2.0? We are a blockchain technology company. Although I personally care for the success of Bitcoin, it's important to distinguish between Bitcoin, the assets, and the blockchain as a programmable distributed trust infrastructure. And we're interested in blockchain 2.0. And blockchain 2.0, using Bitcoin as a neutral transactional currency, we believe is a great, offers great promise. But I want to build a blockchain that could support a nation state putting its national currency and phasing out paper dollars. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of reasons to do that. You know, counterfeiting, uh, utility value, conducting commerce, uh, it, you know, in separate geographic distances, uh, auditability, trust. There's a whole bunch of uh, potential to reinvent our financial services infrastructure to better serve mankind or uh, humankind. And we've only begun that journey. And I'm interested in a platform that is distributed, neutral, has all the principles and properties of Bitcoin, has embedded and imbued in it the principle of can't be evil and allows the world to migrate into math-based assets and math-based currencies. That's going to take time, but we're interested in building that blockchain 2.0 but doing it in a way that is an extension of the existing blockchain, not running off and building our own uh, alt ecosystem and you know pre-mining it and watching Adam and I get rich off having the first coins. That's not our intent. Right. So no, no altcoin race attached to this. It's uh, purely neutral using the Bitcoin as the transactional currency. So and Austin was mentioning there about um, sort of systemic risk issues. You can see that with, with Bitcoin, if, you, if more business starts to move their uh, accounting and business-to-business payments into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency-issued you know, assets and cryptocurrency-denominated national currencies, you get the benefits of this kind of zero-trust, immediate auditability feature. So, you know, if, if you are receive an insurance contract for your car from an insurance policy and they're about to exceed their reinsurance um, limit, that would mean your insurance policy would be immediately failing the audit and be considered invalid by your client. So you can, you can start to remove systemic risk from the system and avoid kind of Enron-like situations. And even in the long term, you know, so there would have to be a number of iterations of smart contracting before we get to those kinds of things. But even in the long term, you could imagine a, a national currency issue where they would have a smart contract, like an issuance contract, that specifies their monetary policy, you know, that they're going to have no more than 2% quantitative easing or maybe subject to some internally measurable market metrics. And that applies to them. So even though they have the key to issue more coins in some you know, redundant hardware air gaps um, key manager, they would be physically unable to bypass their monetary policy rules because their monetary policy rule is bound into the uh, genesis of the coin. 
And so all recipients of the coin would immediately reject them if they tried to exceed their own monetary policy. So I think if we, if we can get to a system like that, we can have kind of real-time auditing and agree to societal rules and enforce them a priori rather than finding out six months or 12 months later that you know, somebody has uh, hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of undisclosed assets and then you have an AIG or, uh, or all these kind of um, sort of cascading failures in the system. And I think one of the important things, this is zero knowledge. I mean, it's kind of funny because a lot of the history of zero knowledge isn't uh, as archived as today's uh, media and internet companies. You know, YouTube didn't exist when we built Zero Knowledge. But at the time, we were, you know, we were very thumb our nose in the face of authority. We, you know, we were fighting, you know, the Edward Snowden type battles. The NSA and CIA tried to shut us down and we were on 60 Minutes, uh, you know, advocating crypto for all and tear down the system and and I think part of my own maturing process is when we started to realize, you know, that may, may not be the best way to interact with these guys is uh, I'm coming for you. I'm going to burn down your system. And uh, so the financial services industry, the people we've talked to have real problems themselves. We talked to a very large buy side financial institution who literally has hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars worth of assets under management and they, they said, from a pure compliance point of view, we don't even understand our risk. We've got entire teams holding binders of contracts and systems, and we're trying to figure out how to even understand what we own and what the risk is and what the underlying asset is. So if you can help us, if we can digitize some of this, if we can have it be encoded in a way that we can actually make representations for compliance reasons and for our own risk management, we would welcome you in. And so I think there are some opportunities to show both governments, uh, financial institutions, that this technology is not about wiping them out or destroying their business. This technology is about imbuing the entire ecosystem with verifiability, uh, trust based off distribution and math, and some real good foundation levels that they can then reinvent their businesses. And yes, it will drive some competition in the industry and hopefully some more efficiencies. But just like news and media organizations are readapting to the Internet and learning new ways to rebuild their businesses, uh, we want to encourage these people to look for efficiencies. And those that do will be much more like the Netflix of the futures versus the blockbusters of the future. And so we want to help them figure out how to rebuild their businesses as the Netflix, not the blockbuster. And if they don't want to adapt, face extinction. Um, yeah, just, just wanted to say another thing about uh, this sort of public auditability. So a typical objection to public auditability on a, on a commercial basis is that companies and individuals do not want you know, their business model to be public knowledge, you know, their profit margin, their volume of trade, uh, their market movements. You know, if, if, uh, if, a, if somebody is selling a large number of stock, they like to keep that to themselves and, and not have that readily available to the market. And so that, that tends to present a barrier to the public auditability that they're saying, well, public auditability is nice, but you know, we've got to preserve commercial confidentiality. So it turns out you can have your cake and eat it. So uh, last time when I was talking to Andreas, I was explaining this uh, concept of homomorphically encrypted values. So it turns out that you can 
um, have the blockchain validate that you know the inputs add up to the outputs without disclosing the values involved because they're they're encrypted in such a way that addition still works on them, and that that actually at a lower level includes um, a zero knowledge range proof, so you can actually prove that. An encrypted value A is less than an encrypted value B, or even that an encrypted value A is less than a, a multiple of an encrypted value B. And so you can actually use it to prove leverage ratios and things like that. So you can do a lot of things in a way that preserve commercial confidentiality and still have public auditability. So I think there's really a scope that we can preserve that, you know, the, the traditional and necessary even financial privacy for individuals and commercial sensitivity for companies while having full public visibility. The way that you describe that makes me think of pseudonymous numbers, right? Because they still represent real value, but not their necessarily true identity, right? Yeah, it's kind of analogous. I mean, you're just saying that I can see that two parties engaged in a, in like a, you know, a currency swap or, or whatever kind of instrument they're dealing in, their identities are not apparent to me at the blockchain level, but you know, they will have business records saying who they bought it from if, if there's ever a need to investigate that. And right, it could be unwound. There are two networks involved in Bitcoin or blockchain-related transactions. There's, there's the blockchain, you know, the actual broadcast peer-to-peer network, and things that go on the peer-to-peer network are byte-minimized because it's a scarce resource, and you don't censor that more than you need to send to ensure the correct interpretation of the transaction. The auxiliary information about, you know, an X509 certificate identifying the seller, a receipt, and an invoice, all that kind of stuff goes at the payment protocol level, which is point-to-point communication between the buyer and the seller. And if one of them is a business, they'll be keeping business records. Or if you're an individual, you'll be keeping your receipts for, so you can prepare your accounts at the end of the year for taxation purposes. Um, I think there is identity, but the identity is managed between the, you know, the parties of the of the transaction, not broadcast to the peer-to-peer network. And so that, you know, I mean, there's a problem with Bitcoin that it's so open that people do network flow analysis and figure out too many things. So yeah. if you keep the identity out of it, it's already bad enough without adding identity to it. Going back to the value hiding, basically we're saying that if you look at the Bitcoin right now, the Bitcoin network flow analysis you can see that this address paid to this address and probably this was changed that went to this address. And it becomes, you know, it preserves a different kind of privacy if you can hide the value. So one example people give about why you need financial privacy is some people are paid their salary in Bitcoin. And so maybe you can figure out who this guy is because, you know, he bought a pizza in the shop or he paid you back a, a small amount that he owed you or something. So you see an address. I mean, it shouldn't be using, we're using addresses, but still there's, there are links between them. So if he was paid his salary and the amount of the salary was encrypted, you wouldn't know how much uh, he was paid. And if he paid you personally $10, you could see that the change that he received plus $10 is equal to his salary for the month, but you still don't know what his salary for the month is. You just know that he hasn't exceeded the value of the transaction. Guys, this is a really, really fascinating project. If people want to learn more about it, it sounds like they're going to have to wait a little bit. But um, are you looking for help or applicants uh, to to help you build this thing out? Um, We will be launching uh, a website with some information as well as some job postings that we're going to be doing. And we'll certainly reach out. For now, I think uh, if people keep track of us on Twitter, I'm at Austin Hill. 
And Adam is at Adam3US. And so if people keep watch of our Twitter accounts, uh, we will be uh, at least announcing the name of the project and the website in the coming month. There'll be at least a placeholder website where we release some more details and list the jobs available. Austin Hill, Dr. Adam Back, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for listening to episode 99 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Adam Back, Austin Hill, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.